What do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> Some of you are grown up. You can't make up that decision anymore. Some kids have very oddly specific and quite hilarious dreams of what they want to be when they grow up. Uh, if you peruse the internet for sample worksheets that ask this question, you'll find responses like, uh, when I grow up, I want to rule the world. <laughs> uh, when I grow up, I want to be a dog. <laughs> uh, one of the favorite ones I found it was, when I grow up, I want to work at Taco Bell. <laughs> but then, you know, there's the oddly hilarious and specific ones, and they're the more common ones. Uh, when I grow up, I want to be a firefighter, a police officer, a veterinarian, president of the United States. And a big one, a very popular one, is when I grow up, many kids want to be an astronaut. An astronaut. What does it take to be an astronaut? Well, in 1959, the United States military selected the first astronauts, looking for those who had the right stuff. Now, requirements for the first astronauts included flight experience and jet aircraft. They wanted at least 1,500 hours of flight time. It required a, a background in engineering, usually a bachelor's degree or equivalent. It required being under 40 years of age, being under 5 feet 11 inches tall so that they could fit in the craft they were going up to the moon in. And it required them, obviously, being in excellent physical condition. Now, as they scanned the military, they found more than 500 men qualified to be astronauts. And so from these 500 men, they underwent more military and medical record examination, and they underwent further and more stringent physical, psychological, and technical tests until they whittled down the pool from 500 to seven. Seven first astronauts uh, in the United States. Now today you can probably guess the tests and requirements to become an astronaut are even more strict than they were back in 1959. In 2016, over 18,000 people applied to be an astronaut. And you know how many they invited back just for interviews? 120, just for interviews. Now, the question is, you know, Steve, astronauts, what does that have to do with anything? Does a good standing before God, an entrance into heaven, work like being selected as an astronaut by NASA? Now, while the first century Jewish people in Jesus' day had no category for space exploration, they did have categories for the right stuff, of having merit, of meeting qualifications, of being impressive. Now, through a couple of different encounters, Jesus teaches his disciples and he teaches those around him how a person enters the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God that he himself is ushering in. And as Jesus teaches on that, he flips their categories on their heads for what it takes to enter the kingdom of God. So we see that strand connecting our passage today in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 31. If you haven't turned there, I invite you to turn there with me now. Uh, it's on page 846, and the Bible's provided in the pew rack in front of you. 846. Mark 10, verses 13 to 31. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. 
do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is God's word. It's normally at this point... When I tell you the main point of the passage, and by doing that, we hope that it's the main point of our time together. Uh, Today, we're not going to do that because I think it's better to save the main point for the very end because I think throughout this passage, Jesus wants us to to show us what it does not look like to enter the kingdom. So in going through each paragraph in this passage, we can see at least three different actions that we can do that will not get us into the kingdom, that will prevent us from getting into the kingdom. So number one, first, we won't enter the kingdom if we think we can earn it. We won't enter the kingdom if we think we can earn it. So at the beginning of of chapter 10, just to set the context, set the scene of what's going on, Mark tells us that Jesus came to the region of Judea after being in the northern region of Israel in the region of Galilee. So still in Judea, this part of Israel, we get a new scene where children are brought to Jesus. It's not stated, but it's likely that their parents brought their children to Jesus. So in verse 13, we see the motivation of these parents. They wanted Jesus to touch their children. Now, it doesn't appear that these children needed healing, uh, but rather these parents sought a blessing from Jesus. So verse 16, that's what Jesus does. He blesses the children. Now, it's tough to tell with certainty just how old these children are in this passage, but that doesn't take away from what Jesus is trying to say, the point Jesus is trying to get across in this encounter. So, so far, what's happening is innocent enough. Parents bringing their children so that Jesus might bless them. 
But like we've seen before in Mark and a lot of different gospels, things go awry when the disciples enter the scene. So like so many scenes in the gospel books, uh, wanting to act like Jesus' security detail, or maybe in modern lingo, wanting to act like Jesus' bouncers at a nightclub, um, the disciples had a problem with little kids taking up Jesus' time. We're not told the exact reason why the disciples didn't like what was going on, but their attitudes showed that somehow they believed that these children were not worthy to have access to Jesus. They, on the other hand, were worthy to have access to Jesus. This elite team of disciples had the credentials to approach Jesus. But these little kids, no, they didn't. Now, Jesus, understandably, is upset. He's upset by the disciples' actions. We read in verse 14, it says that he was indignant. Probably not a word you use very often, indignant. It's a word that means to arouse to anger. Now, anger is ultimately us saying, I am against that. That's what anger boils down to. If you think about it, what you get angry about shows a lot about you. What we are against shows us something about us. It's often the case that what we are against, what we get angry at, is something that's very selfish. And Jesus is the opposite His displeasure, his disapproval, his anger shows that he loves and wants to defend the helpless, the vulnerable, the powerless. So this is why he is indignant. And Jesus goes on to say, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, people try to draw lots of lessons from that verse, uh, whether it's just having an innocent childlike faith or whether it's even reading words of infant baptism into these verses. But what we first want to do, like all of Scripture, is keep in mind what's going on here. Keep in mind the broader situation that these words are in response to. Now, remember, we see the disciples' attitude toward these kids. They don't want the kids to come uh, and approach Jesus. And their attitude toward the children reflects the broader attitude toward children in that day. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Children in that day weren't seen first as innocent and helpless and pure. Uh, They were more often dependents. Children were seen as those who can't hunt. They can't defend. They can't care for themselves. So this is what Jesus has in mind when he says that we must receive the kingdom of God like children as those who can't help themselves at all. Now, Jesus, you notice, Jesus doesn't commend the children for all that they have. Jesus commends the children for all that they don't have. They are helpless. They are dependent. They don't have anything to bring to the table. No credit, no clout, no claims. And if the disciples really thought about that, their actions in their life with Jesus should have told them the same thing, that they have nothing to bring to the table when it came to their relationship with him. It's, friends, it's only when we see that we are the same, that we have nothing to bring, that we will receive Christ's favor as a gift, not as something that we have earned. 
So this hymn that we sang earlier, Rock of Ages, and so many of our other hymns capture that incredibly beautifully. Rock of Ages, that line, that nothing in my hands I bring, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I think of, uh, we're not going to sing it today, but come ye sinners, sinners poor and needy. Uh, it says all the fitness, all the ability that the Lord requires is to feel your need for him, to feel your dependence. Coming to God like children, helpless, defendless. So friends, Jesus does not operate like a talent scout. He's not uh, Israel's got talent, uh, scoring the country, holding auditions to see, all right, who are the people who can offer me the most? No. Jesus knows that if we are to have God's favor, if we are to have access to God, that it won't happen because of what we can give to God, but because of what God gives to us. Friends, just think of the most famous verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16. Does John 3.16 say, for God so loved the world that he let us earn eternal life? No, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. It's his initiative. It's his gift. So at the beginning of this year, I decided that I was going to take more seriously uh, learning how to play guitar. It's been a hobby of mine I've enjoyed the past couple of years. Uh, when I first started learning how to play, I had to stick really closely to the lessons I was going through. Uh, doing certain drills, playing scales, uh, doing some music theory too. But eventually I, I got good enough to the point where I could do things proficiently enough so that I could play some simple songs relatively easily and I could kind of leave behind all the boring stuff. Do you know what happened? I stopped growing as a guitar player. I actually stagnated. I regressed. And I know when you heard the first point of the sermon, you, you won't enter the kingdom if you think you can earn it. You may have think, oh, the, the, yeah, this is Christianity 101, of course. I bet it sounded really obvious to you. But if we, if we forget this, if we forget that we don't earn our salvation, it will affect almost every part of our walk with Christ. It seriously will. So I've heard it said when mature Christians hear or read words that sound familiar and obvious, a mature Christian does not say, oh, I've heard this before, I already know it, and kind of check out. A mature Christian says, oh, I must need this again. That's why I'm hearing it and reading it. We don't leave behind the truth that we do not earn Christ's favor. We don't leave that behind. Think of one great example of this is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote uh, his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, in about A.D. 55. And in that letter, he said, I am the least of all the apostles. And we can see Paul's life still because he wrote letters later than that. About five years later, later uh, Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. And where Paul said, I am the least of all the saints. Two years still after that, Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy, where Paul said, I am the least of all the sinners. So as time went on, Paul did not become less aware that he didn't earn his place with God. He actually became more aware of it. That is Christian growth. It's actually downward. So Christian brother or sister, can you say the same since the Lord has saved you? 
that you become more aware that you have not earned your salvation. If we leave behind this truth that we have nothing to bring to God, but rather any favor we have with him is given to us, then we'll end up elevating ourselves and looking down on other people, kind of like the disciples did. The disciples forgot that they were ones who were recipients of grace, of a gift, not earned. So like the disciples, we'll think that there is something special about us that gives us a certain right to Jesus. And we'll view, we'll end up viewing other people uh, being shaped more by our society than by how Jesus sees them. We'll see other people more like the world sees them than like Jesus sees them. We'll say, God, thank you that I'm not like other people. Before we say, God, have mercy on them and have mercy on me. If we leave behind the truth that we don't earn our salvation, but that it's given as a gift, then, friends, we'll end up approaching our good works not as a way to show our gratitude to God, but as a way kind of to build our resume before God. You might know how the, what this feels like. Uh, if you have been in high school and are ambitious high school students, I know this feeling of building a resume. Uh, you don't really feel like doing a certain activity like Key Club or National Honor Society or volunteering, but why do you do it? Well, because it will look good on your college resume. That's why you do it. <laughs> Friends, if we leave behind the truth that we don't earn our salvation, then we'll treat sort of our entire spiritual lives like that as a way to build a resume before God. So speaking of resume building, if there is anyone who had a stellar resume, it's the man in the second scene of this passage who's called the rich young ruler. As we get point number two, you won't enter the kingdom if you refuse to leave behind what gets in the way. You won't enter the kingdom if you refuse to leave behind what gets in the way. We're going to read again verses 17 to 22, starting in verse 17. And as he was setting on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. From the very start, there's a lot we can commend this man for in this story. I'm uh, telling the same story. Uh, Luke and Matthew add that this man is both young and he is a ruler. Uh, hence, the common way this pe people refer to this man is the rich young ruler. That's how we'll refer to him going on. So the rich young ruler, there's a lot of things we can commend for him. Uh, the rich young ruler had passion. You see how he approached Jesus? He ran up to him and he knelt before him. This guy is eager. Rich young ruler, we can commend him for his respect for Jesus. He calls Jesus good teacher. No one has called Jesus this before, reading in Mark. And Jesus, as Jesus will go on, 
rabbis in his day were really hesitant to receive this title of good teacher for the same reason that Jesus uh, tells this young man, because no one is good in the ultimate sense except God alone. So this rich young ruler, he has respect. Uh, he has passion to come up to Jesus. He has respect for Jesus. And we even see something of a good direction. He asks a good question of Jesus. At least on the surface, it's a good question. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Reading Mark, we haven't heard anyone ask Jesus this. At least anyone he's taught in Galilee. We haven't heard his disciples ask him this. And so this man, he has passion, he has respect, he has a good direction. But by coming to Jesus and asking Jesus what he did, I think this man shows that deep down, he knows there is something that's still missing in him. Deep down, he knows that. So after all this, after this rich young ruler's approach to him, Jesus hones in on the rich young ruler's use of the word good. Jesus says no one is good, in the true sense of it, except God alone. If that's the case, then what does that say of Jesus if Jesus is good? And if that's the case, what does that say of this rich young ruler? It must mean that he's not actually good. So Jesus is going to go to work to kind of rewire this young man's concept of what it means to be good. So he wants to help the young man try to understand himself a little bit better. So he starts with a test. You see, he kind of lays out some of the Ten Commandments. These Ten Commandments, the ones he lays out, Jesus here, he talks about the ways God commands us to treat and approach and care for other people. And we see what the man thinks about himself in verse 20. He says, teacher, all these things I have kept since my youth. How about you? My natural reaction to that is kind of the bulk of that. It's like, really? Yeah, right. Come on. Are you serious? But you think about it, it's not out of the realm of possibility that this guy is actually sincere in saying this. All the commands that Jesus quotes, they just refer to actions. Verse 19, these commands could, you could think about it, be kept even if you had a bad motive for them. So this is a clue into the young man's concept of good. We just, another clue into that. Did you notice how he asked Jesus the question he asked him in verse 17? Something's off there. He asked Jesus what he needed to do in order to inherit eternal life. If you think about it, it, he has already outwardly done what God commands. And so what this young man sensed and what Jesus is trying to point out and make clear to him is that getting into the kingdom, getting into heaven or eternal life does not come from outward behavior. And this young man needs to understand that. So friends, I think this is one of the strongest passages in the entire Bible that helps us answer the common claim that a good moral life will get us into heaven. Other forms of the claim are, you know, God knows I'm not perfect, but I've never killed anybody. And he knows deep down that I'm a good person. Another form of the claim, at the end of the day, I think that my good will outweigh my bad. The only way those claims work is if they, have a, if they are supported by a very thin and very shallow view of what it means to be good. 
very thin, very shallow. If we are focused just on our outward behavior, like this rich young ruler, we'll have a wrong view of goodness. And we'll come to the same conclusion as the rich young ruler, that we ourselves are good. If we are focused just on outward behavior, we'll have the mentality of what I like to call fake cleaning. Fake cleaning. You ever done this? You, I know you've done this. Now, when you're a kid or even when you're an adult, uh, you don't actually put stuff away in your room. You shove it under the bed. You shove it in the closet. And now my favorite form of fake cleaning happens in the car. Uh, when it's been a while that I've given someone a ride in the car, you know, my passenger seat will kind of become a collection, a random collection of things. And so lo and behold, you get a surprise guest in your car, and what do you have to do? You have to fake clean. You have to simply take all this stuff and throw it in the back. That's fake cleaning. Now, focus just on our outward behavior might mean we have the appearance of being clean, but it doesn't mean we don't have a messy, rotten closet or a dirty backseat. So in his wisdom, Jesus is going to open the closet door of this young man's heart and find that things are not so tidy as they appear on the outside. So you look at verse 21 again. It says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come Follow me. I don't want us to skip over one detail too quickly. Jesus looks at this spiritually weak, spiritually blind, and can we even say spiritually stupid man? And he loves him. And he loves him. He doesn't look down on him. He loves him. He cares for him. And the way he loves him is not by excusing his way of thinking. The way he loves him is not by excusing his lifestyle and his sins. The way he loves him is by winsomely challenging this young man and calling him to something better. That's our task. Call people to something better. The rich young ruler couldn't see what he was lacking. But in Jesus' challenge, Jesus pries open this man's heart and shows him what was lacking. By pressing down deeper than simply outward behavior, Jesus shows what this young man really loved and what this young man really lived for at his deepest level. Basically, what Jesus asked this rich young ruler is, do you want to hang on to all your stuff or do you want to follow me? Do you want to hang on to all of your stuff or do you want to follow me? The man chose his stuff. And ironically, in making that decision, he actually missed out on the better outcome. He actually missed out on the greater treasure. He sold himself short. He missed out on treasure in heaven. So the challenge that Jesus was giving this young man was not to oppress him. It was not to offend him. It was actually out of love for him, out of, for this man's good. The man knew himself, the man knew he could sense that his stuff was not satisfying him, that his stuff could not save him, but he couldn't let it go. He was rich, but he was sad. The man needed a right concept of what it means to be good, 
and to recognize his need for a goodness that he does not have. So to show him this, Jesus instructs him and us that being good isn't less than what we do, but it is more than that. Being good is not less than what we do, but it is more than that. It's what we live for. It's what we desire the most. It's what we love the most. If that is anything besides God or anything in addition to God, then literally the entire direction and purpose of our lives is sinful. If you think about that. No reason why Romans 3.10 says that none is good. No reason why that Matthew 6, is it any wonder why he says you cannot serve God and money? Jesus rewires our concept of what it means to be good. And in doing that, he shows us actually none of us are good. The rich young ruler had to understand his lack. He had to understand his need, his sin, if he was to come to Christ. He had to understand Jesus' lesson from uh, his time with children. Nothing in his hands that he brought to the table. Friends, the only way we can see that the good news of the gospel is in fact good news is if we understand the bad news properly. The only way that a person will go to a doctor is if they understand that they are sick. So seeing himself for who he really is in his heart, this man was able to see that he placed his riches in the place that Jesus belonged. So by no means is Jesus saying, just as a, a little bit of a sidebar, by no means is Jesus saying that whoever comes to him has to sell everything that they have. Now we see other examples of rich people coming to faith in Christ, someone like Nicodemus or Zacchaeus. And Jesus didn't say the exact same things to them as he did to this rich young ruler. What Jesus does say, though, is that to follow him truly means that he must come first. To follow him truly means that he must come first before anything. Being a Christian means we no longer belong to and serve ourselves. But we have been purchased by and we serve Christ. So Jesus may never call us to sell all of our possessions. He may never call us to give them all to the poor. But you know what? All of the possessions we do have, everything we have, including ourselves, is no longer ours anymore. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to him. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we treat what we have, who we are, like that? As if it doesn't belong to me. That I've been purchased by God. I do not own myself anymore. So Jesus may not call us to sell everything. But this young man would need to consider, what if I did lose everything? What would happen to my faith in Christ? We have to consider the same thing. We have to consider what, if we lost it, would make us stop following Jesus or at least consider stop following Jesus. If there's something that immediately pops up into your mind, that might be a clue into what you really love and live for besides the Lord. Now, that's not to say that we can't deeply love anyone or anything, but that is to say that Jesus alone is our treasure. That we leave behind trusting in and living for what's in the way of Jesus, and we trust in and live for Jesus alone. 
It's like this. If we are ones who are drowning, we have to let go of the weight that's dragging us down so that we could take hold of Jesus. Hebrews says, let us lay aside every weight. That's why the Bible says, not just to believe in Jesus, but to repent and believe in Jesus. To turn from sin, to turn from how we are living to ourselves and turn toward Jesus. A new stance toward our sin. No longer at peace with it, letting it go. So from the first scene of Jesus welcoming the children, Jesus teaches us that none of us brings anything to the table that will earn our entrance into heaven. Uh, From the scene with the rich young ruler, Jesus shows us that there can be stuff that prevents us from seeing that we have nothing to bring to the table and have nothing to offer God. As we've seen a lot in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus now takes time to kind of debrief with his disciples after a certain scene. And Jesus is going to reiterate here that the stuff that keeps us from seeing our need can actually be very tough to let go of because it's what we're trusting in and it's what we're living for. So he brings home the point that we won't enter the kingdom if we rely on ourselves. That's point number three. If we won't enter the kingdom if you rely on yourself. Look again at verses 23 to 26. It says, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Why is it difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Why is it difficult? Well, you think back to the lesson from the scene with Jesus and children. If we must understand that we bring nothing to the table in our relationship with God, that we are spiritually poor and even bankrupt, if we have to understand that, then those who are materially rich will probably have a hard time seeing that they are actually poor. It's really easy to rely on yourself when you stand before God uh, if you are really impressive in the world's eyes. It's really easy to rely on yourself when you stand before God if you have a lot to rely on in yourself, or at least you think you do. So friends, this is not just wealth. This is anything Anything that causes us to forget that before God we are dependent and helpless. Anything that prevents us from following Jesus, anything, not just wealth, is dangerous. So trying to rely on yourself, your riches, or whatever you use to build your resume before God is like a camel trying to get through an eye of a needle. Now, a lot of people have different takes on what this means, camel through an eye of a needle. Jesus is simply trying to illustrate the impossibility of relying on ourselves for a good standing with God. It's impossible, just like the largest animal in that region could not fit into the smallest possible opening in that region. It's just an illustration. And so, this is why Jesus said in another place, 
that tax collectors and prostitutes get into the kingdom before Pharisees. Just think about that. Tax collectors, guys who were traitors, guys who were slumbags, and prostitutes get into the kingdom of God before Pharisees who are heralded as, as, as good people. Why is that? Well, it's not that tax collectors and prostitutes don't need to repent of their sin, no. But tax collectors and prostitutes can more easily see their sin. They can more easily recognize that if they are going to be accepted by God, it can't be because of them. It's got to be because of somebody else. So this is one reason, I think, why ministry in the suburbs is really hard. I think ministry in the suburbs is really hard. The values here are convenience, comfort, and abundance. And these values numb us and insulate us to think we are okay when we are not okay. And so as we stand ready to love our neighbors like Jesus loved the rich young ruler, when life shows our neighbors that no amount of convenience, comfort, or abundance will satisfy them or save them, there is only one who can do that. A little bit of a sidebar, unannounced. Well, the disciples, they actually got this for once. If no one can rely on themselves, even the best of the best, like this rich young ruler, if no one could rely on themselves, then no one can save themselves. So this is when Jesus steps in and says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We can't save ourselves, but God can save us. The question is how? How, you ask? Well, what Jesus will make clearer later in this chapter, and even more explicitly in places like 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, is that Jesus himself was a rich young ruler. Jesus himself was a rich young ruler. He had wealth, comfort, status, infinitely beyond the man in this story. But Jesus lost it all. He lost infinitely more than this young man would have lost. He lost infinitely more than what the disciples point out that they lost in verse 28. And Jesus did all of that to get us, to save us. Us, we who were sinners, guilty, and could not help ourselves. When we see who Jesus is and what he did, we will leave behind whatever we're clinging to, whatever we're building our resume with, and we will joyfully trust in and give our lives entirely to Christ when we see who he is and what he did. Jesus, friends, is the one who gives us spiritual wealth. Jesus is the one who gets us entrance into the kingdom of God. So no longer do we build our security, our identity, our worth, our hope on things like money, our stuff, our goodness, or anything else about us. We build on the solid rock that is Christ Jesus our Lord, crucified, risen. So finally, the moment you have been so patiently waiting for, the main point of the passage the short version of it, entering the kingdom means admitting, repenting, and trusting. Admitting, repenting, and trusting. Longer version. 
Entering the kingdom means admitting your need. That seeing goodness, you need to see what it means to be good for what it really is. And see that we do not have that. That in fact we have sinned, even at the deepest level of who we are, what we live for and what we love. Admitting that. And it means repenting. Giving up what we live for and rely on and love the most. And now it means trusting. Living for and trusting in Jesus alone who truly is good, even to the deepest level of his heart, unbelievably so, and who died in our place in spite of being perfectly good, carrying our sin on his shoulders. So in explaining of how we can be made right with God and know him forever in his kingdom, we need to be clear on five truths, which very quickly, need to be clear on five truths. Number one, all this cannot be from us. This cannot be from us. If we think it is, we have a wrong definition of what it means to be good. Number two, all this can only be from Jesus. Can only be from Jesus. He is the only one who has the right stuff. And so he himself said that he is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. In explaining how we are made right with God, how we enter the kingdom, we need to be clear on this truth. Number three, that the decision to repent of our sins and follow Jesus is a costly decision. It is a costly decision. Jesus himself tells us, count the cost. Consider it carefully. Following me will mean leaving other things behind. Number four. The decision to repent of our sins and follow Jesus, that's an urgent decision. Because if you are not a Christian, and to those who we talk to who aren't Christians, the Bible says, and we know from experience, that we do not know what tomorrow will bring. And the Bible also says that today is the day of salvation. Jesus' work is finished. Lived the perfect life. Died a substitutionary death. Raised from the dead. Is now seated at the right hand of God. Trust him alone. Well, number five, lastly, the decision to repent of our sins and follow Jesus, to leave behind what we rely on and what we live for and give our lives entirely to him, that decision, friends, is worth it. It's costly, it's urgent, but it is worth it. Jesus says as much in the closing of this passage. We see that now, even in, in the smallest forms, in, in the sweet gift of the local church, our new family. But friends, we will see it in fullness in all eternity. Having Christ, a treasure that neither moth nor rust can destroy and that thieves cannot break in and steal. A treasure that will last forever, that won't go away. So friends, let's say with the old song, take the world, give me Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we look at our hearts and we say, first, we, we need to do that more often. God, help us see beyond just our behavior. Help us see that our behavior often reflects what's deeper and what we love and live for the most. And God, remove every rebel power 
everything that keeps us from you, remove it so that we may be close to you. God, that's where we want. Where else is life? Where else is joy besides the source of it all? And Lord, we thank you. We have nothing in our hands that we bring. But out of your grace, you gave us this. You gave us this salvation. You reached out while we were dead in our trespasses and sins and made us alive together with Christ Jesus. So Lord, help us follow you. Please give us strength to do this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.